Good morning, everybody. My name is Corey Rosen, and you're listening to The Story Podcast. Today, I have a super awesome guest, but before we get into that, if you would like to support us, please check out our shop. We have stickers for sale, and we have shirts and sweatshirts with the first 50 guests on the back. Today, I have on Mr. Sean Gallagher. Sean is a Lancaster County native who has been active in the music scene for over 30 years as a member of the garage pop band Modern Day Pharaohs and solo acoustic performer Gallagher has held virtual residencies at the Lancaster Dispensing Company and Quips Pub through the 90s. After taking time to pursue a PhD in behavioral neuroscience, he returned as a multi-instrumentalist supporting singer-songwriter Angelo M. Gallagher has had a long-time interest in Celtic music and, in an effort to take that sound in a modern direction, he formed Salt Hill with guitar bassist Carl Greathouse and fiddle player Michael Verjanic. Great House brings influences from his history as a founding member of the guitar rock band I Wish I and Forjanic has a fiddle style that draws on his creation roots. Together with drummer Steve Schwartz, they blend their own songs with a mix of reshaped modern and ancient covers. Check him out on some upcoming gig dates with Salt Hill on July 30th at the Gary Owen Pub in Gettysburg and September 17th at the Stoner Grill in Lancaster. And also check out his band's Modern Day Pharaohs tomorrow at the Stoner Grill and Great House with his band Great House September 24th at Lidditz Craft Beer Fest. With all that said, how are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So I'm curious, at what age did you start getting, uh, what influenced you to become a musician? When did you start picking up your first instrument and what was that first instrument? Uh, I started playing guitar at uh, 13. And uh, that was in late junior high. And then moving into high school, uh, quite uh, fortuitously, um, the orchestra instructor was desperate for double bassists. And uh, it was Jane Bry, who um, had a tremendous influence on, on many musicians around here. And Jane just did a call for guitarists. She wanted people who had familiarity with guitars or instruments of the sorts because uh, she believed that uh, they could, they already had a, a kind of a head start that they would need to learn how to play the double bass. And um, the, uh, the upright bass to me just seemed like the, the coolest instrument at the time. I was a police fan at the time, and Sting played this, uh, occasionally played this incredible electric upright bass that I thought was fabulous. So um, with, uh, with Jane's encouragement, I picked up the double bass and, um, so with the guitar and bass skills in hand, I think those two instruments were like the perfect platform to then start putting together uh, high school garage bands. And uh, I've, been doing, I've, been, I've been doing a mix of those three things ever since, the acoustic guitar, upright bass, and putting together, uh, putting together bands. So what was it like as a high schooler to bring together a band and actually practice maybe... Did you guys ever perform? Oh yeah, it was. Uh, we were. I mean, for high school, we were you know remarkably good. Um, uh, the uh, drummer's father, uh, Tom Wood, worked at WGAL, and he had an idea of, of the of the of the tech that was necessary to put on a rock show. And um, I also had other bandmates who um, who were musically competent. Um, uh, you know, my bandmate uh, John Shively uh, was, uh, was already a really good piano player, and I shoved a bass guitar in his hand. I said, here, <laughs> you can figure this out. And, uh, and he did. So we, uh, you know, we had our, we, we 
we played a, a full high school dance our freshman year. That's and, awesome. Uh, yeah, and, and it was very, you know, it, like I said, all, all the right pieces fit at the right time. I had the right, I had the right combination of talented friends, uh, obviously having that drummer's father giving us some guidance on what it took to do a live performance. And, um, and also the classmates at the high school being willing to uh, take a chance and, uh, and, uh, and, and put their classmates up, put, put, a, put a dance in the hands of their classmates. Right. Um, and I, I remarkably, I have a recording of that that was done by another friend uh, on a, do you remember dictaphones, the tape dictaphones? I don't. Uh, it, it, it was like a handheld tape recorder that people would typically use oh, to, like, to like make police. dictation. And, uh, and uh, you know, if, if you had an idea, you'd hit play and you'd record an idea in your head or something like that. This is stuff like the detectives in the mo- old movies have? Like they, they yeah, and then they, they, they'd like shout down an idea, you know, remember to, to call so-and-so. Yeah. Um, and, uh, she recorded the whole show on a dictaphone and it sounds remarkably good. And, um, and I, I'm kind of, a, uh, I'm kind of embarrassed at how I've lost some of those chops. I listened to, mm. I listened to myself playing. I was like, wow, I was rehearsing. I was practicing more steadily back then than I, than it might be now. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So it started early and then, um, uh, migrated into college at Penn State where, um, where the fraternity scene was, a wonderful place to gig. Uh, there were there were very enthusiastic live music supporters. They paid well. They paid sure. good money for for live music, and uh, by that time, um, the people I were I was playing with, some of them now, um, uh, Scott Kinsey, who's still with the Pharaohs. Um, you know, the two of us were we, we kind of founded that band while we were in college. Uh, we cut our teeth in those in those. Um, in those fraternities and we learned how to do a live show and we learned how to, you know, mix a room and even set up a stage and lights. And, um, and it, it just keeps, uh, you know, it, it just keeps reinforcing the desire to do it better and better. I'm curious, uh, did any sort of, did you feel any sort of fame with your classmates support or with the fraternity support at all? Well, it, it's, it's kind of fleeting because, uh, Penn state's so big, nobody's going to recognize you mm. kind of on the street. Um, but, uh, but yeah, when you were up playing, uh, you were at top of the world. Some of the, the rooms would be packed and, and again, it, it just, you know, I'm going to sound like an old man here, but people just wanted live music. The, the demand for live music and that the shared experience of the live music was, was fantastic. And, um, and it, there was, there was a real live music scene, uh, at those places. So what did you go to, to college for? I went. I was undergraduate biology major. Biology major, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm curious. Why didn't you choose to do music? I I, I think I wasn't good enough. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> I enough. mean, I've I'm uh, and I and I think I said this when I when I gave you um, uh, my background. I've I've always felt like a jack of all trades when it comes to yeah. music. I do a lot of things well. Wow. I don't do anything wonderfully, and. Um, Again, when I was uh, when I was in high school, uh, playing the playing the double bass, um, I remember in my sophomore year, and the freshman comes in, you know, she plays bass, and I just I just surrendered the first seat to her. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna challenge you for that. It's yours. Um, so uh, and and I think to this day, still, I um, 
I wind up dabbling too much in these different domains to really develop any kind of refined expertise in anyone. I think I made district chorus once, and that, that, was, about as, that was about as big as it got in high school. So did you guys start uh, doing covers on high school, or did you do your oh, own? Yeah, it was, oh, yeah, it was all covers in high school, yeah, um, because uh, you know just the thought of, you know, how do you write your own song? We can't do that. Mm. Um, so writing originals really didn't emerge until after our – well, we had one or two originals – when we were in college, um, and uh, got them recorded at some you know old school studios around here. There was a there was a studio called um, Gift Horse Studios, and I, I remember going through all you know go, going through the old tape editing, recording, re-recording back then. And um, yeah, it wasn't until it wasn't until I was done with college that I even tried originals. So what what happened after college? Do you guys, the Pharaohs was your high school band, right? Well, no, um, the Pharaohs the Pharaohs kind of emerged from uh, from me and Scott Kinsey, whom I knew in high school, but we did not play in the same band. We mm. got together. Uh, he was at Bucknell, I was at Penn State, which are not too far apart, and we managed to kind of like uh, stitch a musical relationship together across between those um, yeah, on route. For those familiar with Central Pennsylvania, Route Forty Five connects uh, Bucknell and Penn State, and I knew Route Forty Five well. So going back and forth there, uh, the Pharaohs kind of emerged from what we were doing in college. And uh, sorry, I forget the original question. Uh, so did you guys, what did you guys do from there after college? Oh, after college. So after college, um, we moved, <laughs> again, I'm, I'm the most local guy uh, that you could possibly be interviewing here. We moved uh, behind the Friendlies on Oregon Pike. Oh, okay. And we, and we rented a house back there, uh, Scott and I did. And um, we lost the drummer and guitarist that we'd been playing with through college. And we picked up Sean O'Neill, who was another guy I knew. Um, getting back to, um, to high school bands, uh, my high school band was at Conestoga Valley, and Sean played drums in the high school band from Mannheim Township. So mm. we encountered each other through like these, um, these uh, collaborative performances that, that, that high school kids were putting on. Um, and I remember passing him at Quip's Pub after we'd been out of college. We'd lost our drummer, and I, you know, I caught up. I said, "Hey, man, how you doing?" And uh, I took like three steps away from him, and the light bulb went off. And I went back and said, "You play drums." <laughs> um, and so that was it. Uh, the Pharaohs were a four-piece when we were in college, but once we picked up Sean and got things off the ground, it was like we just kind of like settled into a three-piece. Mm. And uh, that—that's when I think like that's when I think the the, the most. The, the most successful version of the Pharaohs kind of took off then because we, uh, you know, we wrote some songs together. We're still a cover-heavy band, um, and uh, but it is fun to uh, to throw those, um, you know, those off-speed pitches at the audience, and um, and uh, and and throw a cover in there and see whether or not they notice or if that if it you know, the, the songs the songs fit the flow of of what we play, mm. so they don't they don't stand out. But it is very satisfying when they draw the same reaction that the uh, that the covers do. So, what was your uh, style back then? Oh, it, it was very it was very eighties. We came out of I mean, the Pharaohs came out of um, I know when people think about the eighties, they think about you know Duran Duran and all this keyboard heavy music. But we were much more inspired by um, by people like Joe Jackson um, and Elvis Costello and these artists that were that were coming out of what I would call this guitar-based pub rock scene, mm. which, which actually just harkens back to the 1960s and you know, bands like the Yardbirds um, 
uh, and even the uh, the mod movements. Well, the mod movement that you know, I'm sorry, I'm getting in a little deep here, but bands like the Jam through the '80s were just guitar-based drums. And you listen to the Jam, and you really hear them recycling a lot of what what the Who and the Beatles were doing in the '60s. So uh, I guess you could say the Pharaohs were still carrying on that that guitar pub band sound um, that that really started back in the 60s. So when did you decide to move in into uh, Celtic music? Well, that was in the 90s. At the same time I was playing with the Pharaohs, I would go to Ireland every year with a guitar on my back. And I had, um, I had a, uh, uh, a cousin's uncle. He wasn't biologically my uncle, but a cousin's uncle uh, who was very much into... Um, uh, very much into Irish music, uh, gave me an opportunity to to go to Ireland, and this was my first summer out of college, and uh, I actually have some family still there, um, or at least family that I you know recognize and 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 uh, the other uh, keep in touch with, so I had an opportunity to go back there, take a guitar, and 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 Chuck Barr, who was the cousin's uncle, said like, look, you know, bring a guitar, we'll have a great time. And um, uh, we just hung out in the west coast of Ireland. The west coast of Ireland from, from, from Shannon to Donegal uh, is, is just a really special place to me. And I, and I, I, had, I was not prepared for what, how it was going to affect me the first time I went. And, um, and the, the way music can galvanize a friendship. I met, I met immediate friends there that I still have to this day. Uh, that we connected with over music. Music is still a very, very strong part of, um, of, uh, of community life, of family life, of intergenerational communication. And that, that just really, it, I know it sounds, it sounds corny, but that just really hit me hard. And uh, I went there in, the in 1990, and then every summer it was like, I'm saving all my pennies and I'm going to go to Ireland for another summer or for as long as I can next summer and next summer and next summer. And um, that was still on the heels of, of um, kind of the uh, kind of the folk revival that was happening in Irish music. Mm. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, I might be going on too long, but that, oh, in a nutshell, that's that's what did it. When I when I was introduced to um, uh, when I when I int was introduced to like the turn that the band that Waterboys were taking at that time, and and Luca Bloom was taking at that time, and Paul Brady. Um, and all of these Irish musicians who were, um, who just seemed to be, um, they weren't playing like what I consider corny Clancy Brothers Irish music. They were, they were, they were playing music that that seemed to still hold up and carry messages that were relevant to today. Yeah, it's it's always interesting. Um, at the college, we were going to we were planning a trip to go to Ireland to uh, to sing around, you know, mm -hmm. take a tour of Ireland. Unfortunately. The day that we were supposed to go, it got canceled because guess what? COVID. COVID. Yep. Yeah. But um, it always inspired me how the Celtic music always has such powerful lyrics and uh, imagery mm -hmm. in them. What was, I'm sure, uh, how did that, the, the Celtic music you encountered in Ireland, how did that differ, differ from the American music that you were used to? Well, that, that might be the thing that to me it didn't. I saw the similarities. Oh. Celtic music was still rock and roll to me, and I, I mean I think nobody nobody demonstrates that more than the Pogues. Um, uh, the Pogues were um, were a, a band that emerged out of the kind of post punk scene um, in um, in England, 
uh, but a lot of them were members of the Irish diaspora, and uh, so they were they were taking that 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 those traditional songs, and they were recasting them in a way that made you think uh, maybe this is the way the song was originally played in mm. in the pubs, and maybe maybe the uh, maybe the the translations when they took these songs into the studios, the whoever was doing the production there, maybe they were sterilizing it, and you got a, you got a feeling that. When you listen to what the Pogues were doing, that that this may have this was probably what was really happening mm. in the pubs, and 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 on the streets when the musicians were playing, uh, so it was it just it was just rock and roll to me, and it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a big leap. So, what were some of the maybe the culture, cultural differences that or culture shock that maybe you encountered? Was there any at all? Or? Well, um, the culture shock was how much more they appreciated live music again. Um, you know, the, uh, still when I, when I go to meet friends in, in Ireland, you sit down, you have a meal and then it's give us a song, Sean, give us a song, give us a song. And you pass the guitar around the table for, for two hours after dinner. And, um, you know, no matter, no matter what your ability is, no matter, no matter, uh, you know, you'd have somebody who's running around chasing a kid. Uh, for most of the night, and then they just say, "Hey, you know, Johnny, get over here, play, play a song," and they'd have to drop everything, and they, you know, it was it's it's incumbent upon you as a guest or as a as a as a social participant to to offer music if you have it in you. Really, mm-hmm. that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's so cool. It's it's um, I can't quit. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Did the um. <clears throat> So, coming back to America, how did you translate what you learned from Ireland into your music here? Well, um, I, I, while I was, I mean, the Pharaohs were doing the Pharaohs thing. It wasn't the place to kind of introduce right. a, a Celtic uh, thing. Um, but as I, as I was doing my solo acoustic performances, I was connecting with other acoustic uh, musicians. Um, uh, one being, uh, I, I played with a fellow, Andy Miller, who was a fabulous flat picker. And that's when I connected with Angelo Melaseca, who goes by the professional name Angelo M, because he was also gigging at Quips while I was at Quips. We were, we were kind of in the Quips, uh, booking cycle. Mm -hmm. And so when I played Quips, I played solo acoustic and I would connect with people like him. And Angelo was coming from a much more American roots and blues angle. Andy was coming from, um, uh, uh, like I said, a bluegrass angle. And when I took what I had been learning from, from the Celtic stuff with them, the three of us really hit it off. And we really, um, and we played together uh, as, um, uh, as the boys with wrinkles. Uh, we played together as a trio at the dispensing company for, for a long time. And again, uh, a lot of credit for this. I, I, before we went on the air, I was telling you about... Um, the importance of having every music venue. It's not enough to have a cool venue. The cool venue has to be has to be um, directed by somebody who understands music and understands yeah. how the music fits the venue. Uh, you had a great interview with Rich Ruoff, who did did exactly that with a chameleon. He did not just have the physical chameleon, but he knew how to shape the musical sound and the scene to fit the building. Um, uh, similarly. Uh, Frith Garstang did the same thing at the Lancaster Dispensing Company, which used to have a very small stage. 
which was which was kind of like wonderfully restrictive. The Pharaohs were a three-piece. They were one of the few bands who could actually fit on that stage. Mm. Um, but when we played the dispensing company, when I played the dispensing company, I was playing the dispensing company as a solo acoustic act, and then the next week I'd be playing there as part of the Pharaohs, and then the next week I would be playing with uh, Andy and Angelo as the Boys with Wrinkles because, because Frith trusted me. She was just like, yeah, okay, you, you know, put together something. It's like, hey, I, Frith, I've got a new idea. I'm going to bring in this, this, and we're going to play this. And she's like, sure, go ahead. And to have, to have somebody running a venue that supports live music who trusts you to take chances and trusts you to take risks, um, that, is, that is absolutely invaluable to a musician and I also think to the music scene. And, um, and Salt Hill was kind of born from the momentum that came up mm. from me connecting with uh, acoustic musicians. And then with, uh, with, from Angelo, we were put in contact with uh, Mike Frigenic, who is from Steelton, Pennsylvania, and he comes from this very strong uh, Croatian community uh, based in Steelton, where, where, again, they have that community that's very much like the one I encountered in Ireland, where there's a, where there's a cultural appreciation for music uh, that, that you don't see in many places in the States anymore. Um, and so, uh, so Mike is bringing this um, Eastern European fiddle influence into things. And so while, while adhering to, uh, to the Celtic stuff that was inspiring me, I saw how these other guys and how these other, other influences could shape the music. And that's, that's, really what, um, that's really what Salt Hill tries to embody. That's awesome. I'm I'm curious of uh, what does Croatian influence mean in, in like music terms, right? Would you know at all? Or? Well, well, it's um, you know, there is. I, I wish Mike were here. Um, there is. There's something about the scales that you go to when you when you go to play a solo. Uh, you know, there there are a lot of parallels, and Mike and Mike can can shift gears into Irish. You know, Mike can play. Irish Whatever. fiddle, just as well. But then um, uh, I, I kind of um, Irish music often lends itself to to what uh, what what is um, what's called open tunings in guitars. Open tunings rely a lot on on drones. Yeah. And when you're you know it's, it's all roots and fifths. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when you when you kind of pull the thirds out of out of a, out of a chord. And you're living in that, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little music wonky here. When you're living in that, in that world that doesn't recognize the difference between major and minor, it gives, it gives um, uh, the soloist, in our case the fiddle player, a lot more room to wander. Yeah. And, and you, can feel, you can feel an interlude drift into, are we in a major key or are we in a minor key? And the minor keys, um, uh, I, you know, I, I'm not speaking as an expert, but the music that Mike is playing is is I feel more often pulled into that into that into that kind of uh, tense minor key feel, and um, so Mike can take that uh, that that traditional Irish melody feel and then bend it in that in that just slightly unsettling way that makes things feel just a little dark. Yeah. Um, and it and it really it really lends for a lot of. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of cool, Moments. spooky stuff, and I think I think the road that you've got dialed up here is is a song that um, that embodies that pretty well, because it's it's me playing. I'm playing uh, an open tune uh, uh, 
uh, dadgad tuning if, if if anybody's really interested. And I all the chords all the chords I'm playing, you know, I think I think the most complicated chord involves two fingers, on on the on the guitar. So if you want to learn through guitar. the whole song, through the whole song. So absolutely, if yeah. you want to if you want to learn guitar and and kind of like, you know, get yourself a good tuner and and find a couple dadgad chords. Um, but um, there's 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 a different approach to playing guitar in Salt Hill. It's actually um, uh, I, I consider that I consider Carl and Mike to be more of the lead players, mm. and I'm as a guitarist, I'm I'm playing a very percussive style, and I'm locked in with what Steve's doing, um, and and listening to Carl and Mike float. So you can again, the road's a great example of that. You can hear the bass and the fiddle uh, floating in their direction when the guitar, all the guitar and the drummer doing. Um, we're just we're just driving that background. Yeah, it's so interesting how uh, instruments can be used in incredibly different ways to incredibly different effects, and mm-hmm. it's all music, mm-hmm. the same. Um, I've had to take that learning journey as a piano player, uh, where it's mostly lead stuff mm-hmm. if you're solo, but once you're in a band, you immediately become more of a rhythm player. Yeah, yeah. by necessity. You're right. So uh, you want to talk about the road? We'll, we'll play it. We'll we'll play it a little bit. And... Yeah, sure. The road was my attempt to write. Um, uh, when you're when you're playing in a Celtic band, you're you you're putting your music up against all of these all of these tried and true staples. There, there's something that people expect uh, when you do that, and um, it's challenging to write a modern. Modern what do you standard. call it? a modern a modern standard a modern right. standard or a modern quote unquote traditional song? Yeah, and the road was I think our uh, so far has been our best attempt to do that. And we don't want to do we don't that doesn't that's not only what we want to do. A lot of our songs do sound a lot more contemporary, but it was it was it was my attempt to write a traditional murder ballad. Well, with that said, this is the road from Salt Hill.
don't ask about the why You didn't know this place You never saw the fire I told you we'd be dancing You know that we'll be clear But only in a home 50 miles from here Whoa, race away I told you I'd be coming back for you someday You know that we'd be dancing I told you we'd be clear There's a light in a window 50 miles from here That was Salt Hills the Road. That was pretty cool, man. Thanks. Uh, is there a difference do you find between writing for a Celtic piece and then just uh, any anything else, or is it all the kind of the similar same? Um, I, I don't. If if something really grabs me, I, w- I will try to write it in that Celtic vein. But a lot of what we do, like um, uh, you know, if you if if you play the other two songs that I that I sent you, sorry, not not too. Not to press you on that, uh, you'll see that they they do have um, they still uh, carry that acoustic element, but it, it is a little more contemporary pop, um, and uh, and so it. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm losing track of your original question, but I don't set out to write a Celtic song. You don't say, okay, this is this will okay. this will fit this, um, if if the hook is there, uh, and if the if the message feels like it'll fit that 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 Celtic vibe, it'll work. Um, but if it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, you know, a lot of songs I felt myself. The last, the last song that we that we completed, I, I can never, I can never write in a vacuum. I, as soon as I start writing a song, I was like, okay, this feels something like that. And um, you know, one of my favorite songwriters is Smokey Robinson. And the last song that I wrote, I feel like um, I, I feel like it it came from a very uh, Smokey Robinson place. But then when we play it. You know, it, it sounds like Salt Hill, and no nobody listening to it would ever guess that that's where it came from. Huh. Um, so, so no, there's there's no real. I, I don't have a, a Celtic methodology when it comes to writing songs. Oh, okay, because no. uh, um, ev- every genre there's a different like taste or uh, something that makes it that genre, right? Mm-hmm. In regard in regards to the lyricing and the the music, obviously, right. I just I was curious if that if that at all just changed, but you're saying it whatever fits the vibe is what it's gonna be. Yeah, yeah, and then that might hurt us because uh, you know if if we were to go pitch ourselves as a Celtic band, and uh, you know play like a Celtic festival, we're not gonna give you a full set of Celtic music. It's right. it's it's gonna be kind of um, uh, it, it's gonna be Salt Hill. It's going to be um, it's going to be what we feel works. Um, we're we're a hard working rehearsing band. When we when we rehearse, we it's um, uh, you know we we hold ourselves to we discipline ourselves to to working on a song and working on a song and working on a song. And uh, when we feel something that works, oh, we're not worried in what kind of musical direction it's taking us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's um, it's kind of like uh, again before we went on air, we were talking about music and and musicianship whether it's within the band or between the band and the audience, being a conversation. And when you're, 
rehearsing a new song, when you're trying to write a new song, uh, there's, there's, there's this nonverbal recognition that says, yes, this is working. Let's keep moving it in that direction. And then it lands where it lands. And um, as a band, we might pay a price there because people might look at us and go, I ah, can't, really, can't really pinpoint Simply, where you're coming yeah, from. Yeah. Yeah, that's the struggle for bands that maybe want to cl- uh, combine genres or bridge plays mm-hmm, bridge genres. Mm-hmm. And because you guys, because you're right, that's the, it's because you have the Croatian, you have the Irish, and then you have you know the 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 American in you as well. It's a collage of it's not purely Celtic music. It's it's an influence of a lot of different music, and it's all being created without the intention of being a Celtic song anyway. Right. Right. So I'm curious, uh, why go you? Because you went back to college for a PhD in mm-hmm. neuroscience. What what made you? What steered you in that direction? Um, I'm a nerd. Um, I like solving problems. I like working on puzzles. Um, uh, I and um, and I also right out of undergraduate, right out of undergraduate, I walked into the world of ophthalmology. I was a medical tech. What's ophthalmology? Uh, eyes, 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 and eye surgery. Uh, I was a medical tech, again, super local, right down uh, um, Lidditz Pike, uh, across from um, uh, across from there was a there was a shoe store, and I, I worked out of a little private practice office, and um, I was working at at a time when uh, LASIK surgery, the corrective eye surgery for nearsightedness, was just coming on the market, and uh, we had uh, a, a fabulous new surgeon who came to the area basically kind of like to bring these procedures to the area. And um, I worked at that office under the tutelage of, of uh, Bart Halpern, who is a recently retired uh, ophthalmologist. And, um, and he was doing all of these surgeries that involved a lot of measurement and a lot of technology and a lot of data analysis. Mm-hmm. But these were surgeries that really had kind of unambiguous success rates. That, that is, you knew when the surgery worked, when the patient could see and everything was great, that was successful. And I was responsible for taking a lot of measurements and doing all the, um, uh, doing, basically doing quality control for these surgical procedures. And uh, I just fell in love with um, the practice of, of making vision better. Mm. And so when I went to graduate school, I went to graduate school to study how vision and visual perception works. And um, my specialty at that time was, I mean, I know it sounds, it sounds simple, uh, but how does, how does your visual system keep you from running into things? Like when you, when you walk through a doorway, it's, it's automatic. You don't have to think about it. But what's really happening is that your visual system is processing the, the edges of that doorway and, pin, and, and directing you toward the center and said, this is the best way to go. Similarly, the same visual system that gets you through an open doorway is the uh, visual system that allows you to catch a ball in a sport. Right. You know, if you're if you're out in the outfield shagging fly balls, um, the brain of a center fielder is doing um, remarkable math, math yeah. uh, automatically to get under that fly ball. When you look at them, when, especially when you when you look at a, a, a ball player chase down a ball in a dead sprint. There's so many calculations. How fast do I run? What direction do I run? When is the ball going to make contact with my glove? That, that the brain just does automatically. And it sometimes only takes a glance, too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen so many clips with baseball. People are, like, when a batter hits straight towards the pitcher, instinctively, mm-hmm. it's 
he doesn't need to almost he, just one look, right? And he can tell where it's going to be, and he catches it, or right. you know, most times they miss. But those, yeah, those clips, but, but the, that they ever catched it all because right. that's happening. Um, you know, there, there's a there's, you know, I could I could drag you into my classroom and give you my thirty minute spiel on exactly what you're describing here. Um, the higher centers of the brain are not involved in in that reflex at all. It's a it's a very uh, your your visual system your visual system sends one message to your cortical brain where you recognize faces and read letters and recognize colors. But there's also a, a, a less appreciated secondary system that almost goes straight straight from your eyes to your brainstem, and it's what allows you to 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 orient yourself if if something's falling on you. Or if a ball is suddenly coming right at you to get your get your glove up and protect yourself, because the speed the speed is too fast for well, conscious thought. Right. Um, so so yeah. So I love doing that stuff. Uh, working in ophthalmology and it's it's a very people people mostly walk out happy with with what was done. It's it's a it's it's very satisfying work. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a job at Millersville. Uh, at, teaching that stuff. I, I also teach, I teach statistics, I teach the history of science and psychology, um, and I teach evolutionary psychology, uh, but that is, you know, I'm, I'm the vision guy. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I've had, uh, I'm cross-eyed, mm -hmm. and um, I've had, what, three surgeries? I think maybe... Uh, strabismus surgeries. Did you have it done locally? Uh, no, I, I'm originally from Salisbury, Maryland. Okay. Um, but uh, I always went up to Wilmington to a Dr. Milner. I don't know if you mm -hmm. might maybe I'm not familiar yeah. because I, I I would have his first name, but I was mm -hmm. a kid. <laughs> it was always Dr. Milner. He'd he'd have the uh, the those toys where uh, it would fall down and collapse like the string toys. Mm -hmm. uh, always look over here, look over here, and mm -hmm. uh, what did you call those surgeries? Strabismus surgery. Strabismus yeah. surgery. Did they make you? Did they have a little book where they had a housefly and they made you grab the wings of the housefly? Do you remember no, doing that? No, I don't. Oh. Well. This was when this was back in two thousand and two, so okay. I would have been like three or four at the time because mm -hmm. they just wanted to correct it early on. Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's very important because your brain needs um, your brain. The the better aligned your eyes are, the better your brain can can. It's it's important for your brain to be able to match those images because that's it's it's a it's an important way to process depth. People mm. people don't realize how much of a disadvantage they're at. If they were to lose vision in one eye, because everything still looks sharp, you can you can lose vision in one eye and still read. You can still quote unquote have twenty twenty vision, but the loss of depth perception is 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 pretty severe. Yeah. So what does <laughs> this is weird? I know I have cross eyed uh, cross eyed, but I don't know what it I could does. talk to you for an hour about it. <laughs> we could, we could do a whole different podcast if you want. Uh, can you give it to me in layman's terms? Um, well, it depends on, uh, there are ways to test how well your eyes are working together. Yeah. And I mean, if you don't mind me saying so, I, I noticed that as soon as we, as soon yeah, as I, I met you. I, um, I figured. And, um, and uh, it, it depends on whether or not when somebody has misaligned eyes, the brain is not going to tolerate the double image. Right. So what, so what your brain kind of learns to do is to either ignore one eye altogether, and that eye is then referred to as a lazy eye. Mm -hmm. Or if if you're if you're lucky, your eye learns to alternate and pay attention to one eye at a time. Mm -hmm. And if people are good alternators, then you can develop good vision in each eye independently, even though the eyes are not learning to work together. 
And someone like that, there is, once upon a time, it was believed that if somebody had misaligned eyes into an adult, into adulthood, there was no point in trying to align the eyes because the brain would never understand how to, how to make them work together. Right. But there is an increasing amount of evidence um, uh, that suggests that it can happen if the eyes do get aligned. The brain can learn to then gauge depth in the way that, um, that it would have had your eyes been aligned normally from day one. And um, who was it? Susan, I forget her name, but there's, there's, a, there's a book that you'd probably like called Fixing My Gaze that came out about 10 years ago now um, about a woman who went through that, had misaligned eyes through most of her life, got surgery to align her eyes, and then she tells the story about how once the alignment was done, how, um, how her depth perception emerged, emerged. That, that what, what we call the binocular depth perception or stereopsis emerged. And, and it was once believed that, uh, that if you didn't get kids corrected by, say, age 10, um, they would never be able to develop stereopsis. Um, but that's, that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm curious because the brain is uh, such a powerful tool, mm-hmm. right? I'm sure, and it can learn all sorts of things and relearn certain things. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised at all if that, w- that were the case. But granted, I'm not an expert at this at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just know I have cross-eyed and, and I can make, make the eye go this way and it goes that way. Mm-hmm. Now, when you cover one eye at a time, is the world still pretty clear? Oh, yeah, I can see you perfect, uh, pretty, pretty fine. With, and I can also switch perspective from different eyes as well mm-hmm. yeah so that's that's good that's a good that's a good start that's that's promising for your prospects of being able to get good stereopsis yeah and you're right with death perception because i remember um i was a boy scout i'm, I'm an eagle scout mm-hmm. and uh Congrats. thank you mm-hmm. and uh f- whenever we did mirror badge college there would be like shooting and archery and all that jazz mm-hmm. and for a shotgun shooting it's whatever whatever dominant hand you are mm-hmm. right and then uh, whatever eye that corresponds to. I'm right hand dominant, left eye dominant. Okay. Oh, so oh, yeah, bad combination. Bad yeah. combination, <laughs> very yeah. bad combination. So whenever I'd, because uh, if you're right hand dominant, you're using your right eye to see. Mm-hmm. But since I, I wasn't focusing with my right eye, the pigeon would go past and yeah. I would always miss it. Yeah. But as soon as I just, I told my instructor, I was like, what if I just switch to my left eye? And they're like, that's not possible. I'm like, well, I'm just going to try it anyway because mm-hmm. I think it'll, it'll work. Yeah. And immediately it start, I, I mm-hmm. hit all the clay pigeons. Right, yeah. It'd almost benefit you to wear a patch over the other eye probably. Maybe. Yeah. I well, I remember as a kid I'd always have... When you're doing that, not, not for good. Right, of course, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, did you go through the patching? I did go through the patching, mm-hmm. yeah, as a, as a kid. Well, I'm pretty sure that was just because after surgery they had to cover the eye. Because, or maybe because it was tender? or well, well, what they want to do, it depends on what kind of patch it was. If it was like a cotton pressure patch, then that was probably something after surgery. But if it was like a pirate patch. It was like a pirate patch. What they're trying to do is that they're patching the better eye. And they're, oh. they're, they're compelling the brain to pay attention to the eye that it might be ignoring. I'm, I'm really simplifying things here. Right. But, um, but if you're not alternating 50-50 and you're not giving each eye an opportunity to see the world, and one eye is getting... Yeah, I mean, one eye is literally getting a larger share of your brain than the other eye is. Right. So what you do is you patch that eye, and you make the weaker eye fight for its fight for its territory in your visual cortex. So, should I, as a person of cross-eyedness, should I make a, uh, an effort to use this eye more? Um, it, it 
it depends. I don't know. First, you know, I, I must start with a caveat. Right. Consult your doctor. Consult your doctor. Of course, this is not medical advice. <laughs> and don't, don't do it when you're behind the wheel or doing something important. But I, I think when you're doing something like reading, um, it's the the ability to improve the acuity, um, you know, quote unquote, at your age. I'm speaking to somebody who's probably half my age and I'm I don't mean to make you feel old, no. um, but the ability to improve acuity, I don't think there's as much evidence for that. But if both eyes, if you're capable of reading a book with both eyes, um, you know, talk to a doctor about uh, your prospects for getting the alignment. Uh, did you ever do, were you ever given a, a Brock string? Like it's a string with a bead on it and they, they yes. need the bead in there? Yeah. Okay, yeah, go practice your Brock string. Uh, That's, this is something I never thought I'd learn about. <laughs> So long way from music, right? Well, <laughs> getting back to music, how is there any connection? Uh, and I'm speaking, of course, there is uh, between the the brain, the music, uh, even eyes mm-hmm. that maybe you found. Um, well, well, for me, uh, you know, I'm I'm a very mathy techie guy. Uh, when I look at a guitar, I see I see patterns. I see patterns all up and down the fingerboard. Um, you know, chord shapes are patterns. Intervals are patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, frequencies are patterns. Yeah. Um, and uh, when when you recognize that, it's it's kind of funny because the um, the imperfection of of a fretted instrument will will drive you. If I'm, I'm talking to anybody who plays guitar out there. The imperfection of a fretted instrument will drive they're you nuts, nuts. because uh, there's just um, what you're, you're just compromising, you're hedging, you're going, okay, well, I'm going to put the 12th fret here, and that'll be a perfect octave for these strings, but it's probably not going to be a perfect octave for those strings, because if you make it a perfect octave for a string that's this thick, it's probably not going to be a perfect octave for a string yeah. that that's that thick. And um, so the math and the techie part of music... Um, uh, fascinates me um you know hearing and the difference in different instruments what makes an instrument sound great uh, uh again guitar aficionados will talk to you about the the pursuit of tone what makes a what makes an amplifier sound good to you and as a neuroscientist um i'm not i'm not content to just sit back and say well that amplifier is better than this one or this works in this i want to know why and um and so i i want to know the whys about what makes a guitar sound good? What makes a bass line put in 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 a bass line that counters a guitar line? Why does it why does it work sometimes and why doesn't it work other times? And as we were discussing before we went on the air, I think a lot of this has to do with um, uh, the human brain. First and foremost, is is wired for language. It's it's wired mm-hmm. to understand language. It's wired to use language. It's wired to respond to language. And language is about, is about, so much of language is about rhythm and pitch, rhythm and pitch, rhythm and pitch. And, uh, and we don't appreciate that when we speak to each other. Um, unless, unless, well, you might not appreciate it, but if you are watching a bad actor, I, I, was, I was reading, I was reading a review, I was reading a review about a Shakespearean play um, a couple weeks ago. I think it was a review in the Wall Street Journal about a Shakespearean play. And the, the, author, the, the writer, the critic, was talking about how the lead in the play had something down that the other actors were not, mm. that the other actors were not able to live up for. And when you're doing Shakespeare, uh, like, like I'm an expert in Shakespearean theater or anything, but uh, when you're doing something that is, it, it's, there's a style. Yeah. 
there's a there's a cadence, there's a rhythm in the exchange that has to be right. And you knew that Shakespeare understood this when he wrote that. This line, this line goes da 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 da, and then it comes back with da 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 da. That's rhythm. That's what music is. So when we when we write music, what we are doing is we're tickling those centers in the brain that are probably responding to language. And, and those centers have expectations. They have expectations about rhythm. They have expert expectations about pitch. They have expectations about, um, uh, about, about um, mood. I mean, think of how, you know, the way somebody utters a phrase in a movie or a play will evoke you emotionally the same way an instrument played in a particular way will evoke you emotionally. Um, and, and in my opinion, it's coming, it's, 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 it's using the same software and hardware. Mm-hmm. They're, they're taking, music is taking advantage of all these things that have already been laid down by our language centers. And, uh, and again, that's why, that's why a musical exchange is, is just as satisfying and can be just as exciting as a good conversation. You know, a, a one-hour conversation, the time flies. A one-hour jam session, the time flies. Oh, nice. Because you are connecting with another human being, and on an, on an emotional level, you are all saying, "I understand where you're coming from." You don't have to put it into words. I understand where you're coming from. Let's move it in this direction. Let's move it in that direction. Okay, now let's move it back in this direction. Music is an extension, or music is exploiting. Uh, it's an extension of language, and it and it's piggybacking on all of those mechanisms that that make language work so well for humans. It's it, there's a saying in theater. Um, when it's too much for words, you sing. When it's too much for for singing, you dance. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's, it plays off that right. very well. Right. When because it, 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 you're right. Imagine tone and diction is everything mm-hmm. in a conversation. Mm-hmm. You can say that was a good job. That was a good job. Right. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Well, it's why text messaging gets us into so much trouble so because much trouble. because you cannot you cannot decipher the affect without um, without actually hearing you're not hearing the song and the rhythm right. you're reading the words but you're not hearing you're not hearing the pitch and the rhythm and you're imposing your own thoughts and context onto that right. that's why that's why social media is so mm-hmm. so draining a lot <laughs> mm-hmm. of times because we can't we can't uh, we can't understand how that person is saying it what that person is actually saying right because I can say. That was a good job, and mean completely different <laughs> something else. I could, or I could say that yeah. was a really that was a good job, yeah. and, and that means you know, it was a really good job. Right. It, but you can't discern that behind text unless unless you really really understand the person. Even right. but even then, uh, wives and husbands get confused all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, people have known each other for years. Yep. Right. So I'm curious, what is one of the most interesting uh, things that you've learned? in regards to your uh, studies about the eye, about the brain, and all that jazz? Um, uh, how much is automatic and unseen, if you will? And I mean, I mean unseen in the scientific way. We were uh, you know, talking about uh, that baseball player catching a fly ball. Um, uh, you have a visual system that is sensitive to the rising and falling of the sun that helps mm-hmm. to set your circadian clock. And we yeah. humans, once we invented the light bulb, we have been uh, hijacking and messing with that up, messing that up. Um, and uh, and our, you know, so so much of our 
and and thankfully, right? So much of our so much of our what our brain does is done without our conscious awareness and help, yeah. um, uh, because it's simply it's simply um, it, it doesn't need it. Right, right. Right. Imagine if you had to think every time you blinked. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and and again, just getting back to music, uh, it just it just works. Yeah. Why does it just work? Why does it? Um, why does my uh, hand automatically know how to go from a C to a G, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Without even me thinking about it, right? Which makes which makes teaching music, uh, you know, um, you know, I I, I got to give so much credit to what you're doing, and and you have you have such a broad palette of 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 guests here, um, uh, so you're going to have, um, you know, when when Don Grabowski comes in tomorrow and talks to you about uh, the, his glove system, um, how that benefits musicians, the yeah, yeah. Um, teaching somebody. Uh, teaching somebody how to play a guitar is like teaching somebody how to k- swing a golf club. You 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 just do it in front of them and go, look, it's easy. And you, there's no way for you to. I mean, we can we can reflect on when we were novices learning an instrument, um, but you know, for for guitarists, the, you know, all all three of my kids picked up guitar because I, I've just got them laying all over the house. And um, some better than I am. My daughter is a much better finger picker than I am. Um, but of course, with guitarists, the big mountain is bar chords. How do you do a bar chord? How do you do a bar chord? Uh, that's and, where and, I stop from. Yeah, well, exactly. And and it, and uh, for somebody who's been playing guitar, you play you you just you just land on it. You just boom. There it is. There it is. There it is. And you can remember that it was hard for you. But you can't remember why it was hard, and you can't mm-hmm. put yourself in the position of that person who's learning. Um, so, um, so teaching, uh, you know. I, I guess my point is that that a teacher, a, a music teacher, really has to work to put themselves in that mindset that they have not had for years to say, okay, this is what you're experiencing, and this is where I have to, um, I, I have to be able to put myself in your shoes. And, and understand what your current obstacles are now. And so much of w- when you finally do overcome those obstacles, you do it automatically. There's, yeah. not, there's, not, something, there's not something that you suddenly did, did. That, that you can put your finger on and just say, happened. that made the difference. Uh, it, just, it just happens to work. And so the best music teachers, I think, are the ones who can scrape below those layers and understand how to get to, um, how to put themselves back in that naive state. And and say okay, this is this is where you are, and let's let's try to build from here. It's incredible because um, when I when I was uh, younger, um, I'm only 22, <laughs> but uh, I tried to learn how to play Journey. Mm-hmm. By I, I tried to learn how to play Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Oh, this brutal place to start. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, not knowing and not being taught most of anything on piano, but I can just do my own thing. Okay. And so trying to get the baseline. Do 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 mm-hmm. with the do do and, and having that rocking all together, it took me at least a few months, and I almost gave up on it. But mm-hmm. one day, it li- it just happened, and it and I have it ever since. I'm sorry, I can't help it. So you didn't stop believing. I didn't stop believing. I, I was almost there, mm-hmm. but then I didn't. But see, as a guitar player, I had the same thing because that that song landed when I was in eighth grade, mm. right when I picked up the guitar. And so, uh, you know, Neil Sean comes in with this guitar riff, which is which is very trite, but he plays it very cleanly and very fast. And when you're a still opening guitarist, when you're a new guitarist, you know, start start, start easier start and, easier. and work your right, way up. Don't do 
the number of high school bands I saw doing Rush covers in my day was just unbelievable. And, and there was just something, something inside me just wanted to scream, stop, stop. There, there's, um, you know, there's, a, there's a reason why, um, why uh, more bands do REM covers than Rush covers. Mm. You know, REM was that, uh, that garage band. So, so um, you know, for, for anybody learning guitar, and, I, and I've been able to, to kind of share this with my kids and other, other people who are beginning. Um, it, it's very useful to, to come up with that, um, uh, you know, class, classical, right. You, you, you learn any instrument. And, of course, you, you remember the series of, of your, your musical instruction books. You yep. have the level one, level two, level three, whatever. It would be, it would be very useful if somebody could compile that for, uh, for pop songs, for for. Mm. for People who are, you know, that that kid who um, uh, wants to learn how to play guitar. Because all the difference in the world, you can, when when you play an instrument, uh, when you're learning an instrument. Um, my my first guitar instructor was Herb Erickson, who taught at Don Randall Music over at the East Town Mall, and he was an old um, he was an old army band guitarist. Oh wow! Uh, he must have had great stories, and I was just too young and and naive to understand. Uh, but he understood that. Okay, here's the lesson book. Here's here's the here's the Mel Bay lesson book for guitar. But here's here's a pop song I'm going to throw in too. So he knew he knew how to do that in parallel. And so he he had an understanding of how you could start with those. Don't start with "Don't Stop Believing." That's yeah, all. No, that's I, all yeah, I'm no, saying. I, you're right. It, people want to start piano by learning uh, "River River Flows Through." Have you ever heard that piece? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that is a very hard piece to put together, mm-hmm. and uh, you have to learn chopsticks. So you have to learn yeah. you have to learn the simple stuff first, yeah. because that's that's how you build on your repertoire. Right. And once you get your you know scales and arpeggios, scales and arpeggios first, mm-hmm. then it's it's gonna make the uh, the line for uh, Sweet Child of Mine is gonna right, make right. It's gonna... way more right. sense. Uh-huh. And it's and you're gonna have that under your fingers, wait, because that's a warm up scale that he used right. and put it into the song, mm-hmm. and you're not gonna have the chops to get that warm up scale, and unless you know your scales already, right, right, and you know the fretboard, I, because uh, I did the same thing with Sweet Child of Mine. I, I want to learn that song, uh-huh. and uh, I got it, but I didn't understand why, uh-huh. and even now I'm gonna I have to think about which fret or which string is this on, mm-hmm. but because I don't know the scales, mm-hmm. but so if you start with a foundation, you're going to be able to go way further and remember it way longer. Mm-hmm. We have some, some more of your songs. We're kind of rounding out our radio time. Uh, we have some of your earlier oh, uh, geez. sets. <laughs> so we have, we have Gallagher with, uh, with Angelo, Angelo M. Mm-hmm. No, um, this, is, this is one of Angelo's songs. I have to be clear with that. Okay. And that's just, just, just me and bass and backup vocals there. But that was just to give you a sample. Um, but so this is never be the same, mm-hmm. right? What? Is, tell me a little bit about this piece. Oh, it's it's uh, classic Americana, uh, lost love song. Guy screws up and uh, can never go back, and is uh, in self pity. You know, like like you should you should talk to Angela. This is again right, this is Angela's this is Angela's song. Um, and uh, I played bass with Angelo, and uh, when Angelo wanted to put a band together. Uh, he's a fabulous guitarist. Does not need another guitarist with him, and it was me and the late great Oz Christ. Uh, we were a, a kind of a, a folk power trio, and Oz comes from uh, 
the the metal world. Uh, Oz Oz looks like you know he's he's all tatted up and he looks angry as he can be when he was playing. But he is such a great guy and he is such a fun musician to play with. And um, and he he had this snare drum. He had this beautiful snare drum. And uh, I played bass with Angelo. And as a bassist, your mentality goes somewhere else. And to, to just get into a good jam with them and to just lock in on the sound of, of Oz's playing when you're playing bass was, was just, you know, it's just one of, those, one of those peak experiences as a musician. Um, so this, is, uh, this, isn't, this isn't one of those super intense songs, but this is, this is a, uh, like I said, this is a, a lost love ballad. With that said, this is Never Be the Same by Justin, uh, uh, Angelo M. Angelo M. Yep. Her friends think she's lonesome. Her friends know she's blue. They know it may take some time She gets over you And it may seem crazy To let you get away But it would surely be insanity To try to let you stay Cause it'll never be the same, no Watching all you have go down the drain Trading her love and trust For cheap love and cocaine there Ain't no way it'll ever be the same Now sometimes she gets in wondering Wondering Soul. 
Now she holds the hand of a loving man Together they grow old Somewhere far away An old lover, tired and sad Sits in a self-inflicted loneliness And a memory of what he had Cause it'll never be the same No, won't ever be the same After watching all your work go down the drain Trading her love and trust Now he's the one in pain There ain't no way it'll ever be the same Now they both know That was Never Be the Same by Angelo M. Angelo Meliseka is Angelo his full name. Meliseka. And I'm sure you can spot, spot, find all of that on Spotify. Yep. Uh, we have one of uh, your Modern Day Pharaoh songs. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that... Wasn't you? Wasn't you. Wasn't you. Yes, recorded 30 years ago. How old were you 30 years ago? Not existent. Okay, there we go. 22. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you'll see how 90s we were at, at this time here. Uh, do you want to explain a little bit of what it's about? What's the style? Um, it's it's very it's '90s abstract lyrics, um, jangly guitar stuff. Uh, it's um, you know, and 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 we've been kind of like rehearsing some of these old songs, so it's it's pretty, it's pretty, um, it's pretty surreal to um, at at 54 to to be rehearsing um, a lyrics that you wrote as a as your 23 year old self. Sure. Um, but uh, I, th- I think it holds up pretty well, um, and uh, and uh, yeah, you'll hear. Um, this is myself, Scott Kinsey, and Sean O'Neill, and we are still together, and we'll be at the Stoner Grill tomorrow, tomorrow night, night with Gene Pellin. Gene, Gene again, talking about talking about venue owners who who push for uh, live music, and Gene Gene has built a um, a haven for live music. He he built a. You know he's got an establishment that is live band ready, mm. and um, uh, the the old days of um, you know schlepping your gear uh, into into a venue or watching bands schlep their own gear into a venue, and then uh, not mix it well or or not have the sound well. You walk in there, Gene knows what he's doing. He'll do the mix for you. He'll do the lighting for you, and. Um, uh, it's it's wonderful just to be able to bring an amp and a guitar into a place and uh, again at my age I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lug power right amps of course yeah anymore so so yeah so the Pharaohs will be there tomorrow night tomorrow night starting at seven seven thirty seven seven thirty yes so with that said this is wasn't you by the modern day Pharaohs.
that was Wasn't You by the Modern Day Pharaohs. Please, dude, be sure to check them out. They have, you guys have a Facebook page, right? Yep. Facebook page, Modern Day Pharaohs, and you have Spot. Are you guys on Spotify? No. No. Yeah, all, this, all of our originals were written before Spotify. Gotcha. <laughs> Is there a place where people can find them? Uh, it it probably. Go on Facebook and, and, and email us. We'll, we'll send them to you. <laughs> Well, with all that said, please, yeah, go check them out. Stoner Girl tomorrow, and there are other upcoming performances in the description. So please check them out. Uh, Salt Hill has their Facebook page and everything else. Dude, yep. Are they on Spotify? Re- uh, Reverb Nation. Reverb yep. Nation. And that's, yep. I believe, is that in the description? It should that's, be. It should be in the description. Yeah, I think so. If not, I'll put it there. Yeah, it is. Okay, yeah, it is. we're slow in getting a proper, uh, a proper recording done here, but right. ho- hopefully in Mar- the works. Marketing is the bane of... Of all musicians, well, yeah, we're also, yeah, we're also, uh, you know, jobs and life gets in the way, right? Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. With all that said, I hope you guys have had a awesome time listening. If you want to follow us, please be sure to check out our Instagram or Facebook, or just search up the story Corey Rosen. That's C O R Y, no E R O S E N on all streaming platforms. You can find me there. And if you want to check out our upcoming guests and events and extra things, please be sure to check out our Instagram at the underscore story underscore podcast or facebook.com forward slash the story Corey Rosen. We're going to keep going on on there, but for the radio, we're going to get you guys back to the music.